0: out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, January 5th, 2015. I'm Dr. Len Saputo.
1: And I'm Registered Nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24 7 on PRN.FM and drsaputo.com.
0: Today you'll hear Nurse Vicky's 2020 Health Tips at 20 after and 22 the hour. And we have another great show for you today that's going to include why has Sierra Leone government rejected a miraculous Ebola cure that's cheap and safe? And what common foods are linked to getting
1: lower grades?
0: Why doctors overdiagnose and overtreat hypertension?
1: And what can predict our mortality ten to fifteen
0: years early? And does how old you feel actually determine how long you'll live? That's one that's going to surprise you. Yeah, you better stop telling me I'm old. Wait a minute. You're gorgeous, Vicky. no matter what your age <laughs> Oh,
1: listen to you get out of that.
0: Well, I mean, <laughs> just look at you. You look great.
1: Thank you. So what would you think if there was a safe and inexpensive cure for Ebola and it was rejected by Sierra Leone's medical leaders? This political move recently occurred with an alternative therapy. It was rejected because they claimed it can. It is considered experimental, and yet they approve
0: experimental drugs. Yeah, well, see, there's a double standard here. And When you do something that's in the mainstream... Everybody goes for it. The FDA goes for it. The CDC goes for it. The World Health Organization goes for it. Why? Because it's in the system and it's the status quo. And so it's just like automatically in. And of course, it generates a ton of money.
1: Well, the politics that surround Ebola go far beyond the imagination. Ozone therapy seems miraculous, and yet it's being suppressed by the president of their medical association and minister of health after two American doctors were teaching Sierra Leone doctors doctors how to use it and save the life of an infected doctor.
0: Yeah, well, isn't that a tragic story that they get an invitation there, their doctors get excited about it. This was Dr. Robert Rowan, by the way, who's a friend of mine I have known for probably about 20 years now, and uh, he's really into oxidative therapies, which is what ozone is all about. And it's a safe approach to injecting a gas, okay, right directly into the bloodstream and it it does some really amazing things, and one of well, the well, th- that
1: sounds weird to say injecting gas into the bloodstream because everybody's <laughs> afraid, like with an IV tubing, of having air bubbles in it or uh-huh. something.
0: Yeah, well, air bubbles can't do a thing. It takes about 150 cc's to cause death, which is what well, you so worry about. So, what do you mean when bubbles.
1: you say injecting gas into your bloodstream? Ozone,
0: okay, which is O three. Oxygen is O two, but when you do certain things to oxygen to make uh, the oxygen molecule split apart. It joins. Uh, then there are two molecules of oxygen rather than O2. There are two singlet oxygen molecules. And they join other O2 uh, molecules to form O3, which is ozone. It stays around for about 30 seconds, but it does some important things that help to make sure that people who have infections like uh, Ebola or other viral infections or bacterial infections or really any kind of, uh, of infection... Uh, go away the things that it does is it helps the blood the hemoglobin in the red blood cell to take up more oxygen and to release more oxygen in the blood in the bloodstream so that the tissues can get more oxygen. An important thing when the problem that you're facing is a deficit of oxygen in almost every disease uh, where there's inflammation
1: so what really is Ebola i mean why does it need more oxygen?
0: Well, I, I think any viral illness that causes inflammation... So you're saying Ebola is a virus? Yeah. Any viral infection uh, or any bacterial infection or any inflammation in the body ultimately interferes with, with energy production. With mitochondrial, which are mitochondria are the little energy packets of which we have thousands in every cell, those mitochondria make the energy substance... The ATP that we use, see gasoline runs a car, but ATP runs your body. And when you're sick, the final common pathway of dysfunction is inadequate production of ATP. So when you're sick with a viral infection or any other kind of infection or inflammation, you have a deficit of that. So the ozone, okay, helps the uh, red blood cells carry a little more oxygen and to distribute, to release more oxygen in the tissues. Uh, it also improves the way the mitochondria uses that oxygen to make ATP. So you get a double benefit here. Plus, it modulates the immune system. So that if the immune system is hyperactive, as you see with autoimmune diseases, it tones it down. And if it's too low, it builds it up. And the way it works in people who have Ebola is that it prevents what's called a cytokine storm. And what that means is that certain kinds of infections, like the say the Spanish flu of nineteen eighteen, was associated with the body responding so profoundly and and hyperreactively to the viral infection that there was this thing called a cytokine storm that caused all kinds of problems with the body's ability to function
1: because the body was trying too hard to fight it.
0: Yes, and it fought it and it fought it very very quickly. So there was a huge burst of these chemicals that cause what we call a cytokine storm that wind up causing coagulation of your blood, intravascular coagulation it's called, uh and eventually it bleeding.
1: The, yeah, so like okay, so It pushes the cell, I guess, and makes the capillaries leak.
0: Well, the mechanism of that is, that's a nice way to look at it, but basically what we're saying, somehow there's damage to the uh, capillary walls so that they begin to ooze. They can't keep things, the fluids inside of them, and that causes kidney failure and lung failure and heart failure and, and so destruction it's plugging, of your brain. So it's
1: plugging up all the organs, and it's
0: hard for the oxygen to get to them. Oxygen doesn't get to it hardly at all, and you wind up with a an enormous reaction that's lethal. And that's why 60 or 70 or 80 percent of people who get Ebola die from it. They had all these problems that I just described.
1: Yeah, they were saying that the best clinics in Sierra Leone have 60% death rate.
0: Yeah, that's being optimistic.
1: So this sounds really great. Of course, they weren't able to uh, administer the ozone therapy to too many people because they were
0: stopped. hardly any. I mean, what happens is, first of all, Dr. Robert Rohn out of Santa Rosa, California, and Howard Robbins out of New York City uh, were invited uh, by the president of Sierra Leone to come and teach their doctors about using uh, intravenous ozone therapy, and so they come over. They're teaching the doctors. The doctors are loving it. Are the people who are in charge of of the Ebola programs over there are thinking this is fantastic. I mean, they were skeptic, skeptical to start with when they see what it does and how and the mechanism of how it works. After they were lined up to get it
1: themselves,
0: <laughs> exactly for prevention, <laughs> exactly. And then it turns out that one of the doctors that was there stuck himself with a needle from a patient who was infected with Ebola. And rather than tell anybody about that, he talked to Dr. Rowan, okay, and to Dr. Robbins and uh, said he wanted to have this treatment because he was afraid that if he had Ebola, that they put him in the regular Ebola treatment program, which is not a good place to be. Because, like you said, there's a 60% mortality. And so they didn't do an Ebola test on him because they didn't want to have the information out, but knew that that's what he would get. And sure enough, on the second day after he had gotten stuck, he developed a high fever. He lost his appetite. He had abdominal problems. He was tired. I mean, he was obviously sick. So they gave, on the third day okay, after that, the ozone treatment. And within two days, he was well. Then they tested him privately, and he was Ebola positive. So they knew that they had something that really worked here, and so did everybody else. But the problem is, is that the people in Sierra Leone that run the government... Don't want a cure for it.
1: Well, he got. Did you they, hear what I just said? Yeah, they, they don't, don't want. It, they don't want a, want a cure, cure because the minister of health threatened him by saying on the phone. He called him and said, "If you value your job, He's there talking,
0: will be no ozone treatment." He was saying that to all of the doctors that were in in that in Sierra Leone. They knew it worked. So why would anybody make a statement like that? Because it only common sense would tell you, here's something that for forty dollars, okay, basically, can cure you of a disease that's sixty to eighty percent lethal. Well, well
1: it, the answer too is what is the same thing as to why this drug that's supposed to be helpful for Ebola got into the Lancet magazine, which is a very respected medical journal. Right. And this ozone therapy never got into that journal. It's not
0: going to get into any journal because there's a... They want to use drugs. Well, I, I don't see how there's anything but a conspiracy here. I mean, why, when somebody comes up with something like this, isn't everybody tripping over trying to do the first study? Why isn't the NIH, National Institutes of Health, giving lots of funds to do a clinical trial?
1: And they reject this because they say it's experimental. And yet they're using experimental drugs. Right. And the and the ozone therapy, from what you've just said, doesn't have a downside. No. It's, it's not totally dangerous.
0: Safe. No, there are no deaths from it. It's and it doesn't have any side effects that amount to anything. So you're looking at a safe, inexpensive treatment that probably works great.
1: And they also gave it with a couple of antioxidants, with yeah, some vitamin okay. those, C and glutathione. Yeah, yeah,
0: those are just little things to add to it. But the ozone is is the real muscle here. So what's happening that they make decisions like this you have to look past and go past what they're saying and go deeper to the reasons why because no logical person would say we don't want to explore this further because it's cheap and it works
1: and then what are they doing with the people that have Ebola they're crowding them all together in these clinics where they can spread it more
0: well that's true too but so what would be the reason then vicky I mean, why? Money,
1: money, money, money.
0: Okay, and so the real money is what? Drug money. Well, <laughs> the, the pharmaceutical companies are going to make hundreds of billions of dollars if they come up with a drug. And, of course, that's why this particular drug that uh, was being studied was published in this prestigious British journal called The Lancet. Uh, so they have uh, lots of support for that. And for another drug that that's called Z-Map that uh, hasn't been clinically tested, but they're using as well, they get into the medical journals, but these don't. So the bottom line here is, well, why would people want people to continue to be sick? What's the point of that? And why would they get involved in a rather minor epidemic in terms of the number of people that are involved? Because we're looking at four or 5,000 people here, which is... A drop in the bucket when you look at the projected deaths by the CDC for influenza. There they're talking about millions of people dying across the world every year, even though those numbers are crazy and not true. Those are the numbers that are there. Why wouldn't they focus more on that? Why does this get into the press and become something that's uh, scaring the hell out of people when they're seeing doctors in spacesuits treat people because this disease is so bad? What's the point of all the hype? Why does the U.S. send over military troops? Do we need tanks over there? Well, what's, to, that,
1: yeah, what's, what's that, that got, got to d- do with being sick?
0: Yeah, why, why wouldn't we send a medical team over there to be able yes. to do things? That's- well, you begin to put two and two together and see the picture that's being painted here. And it's obvious that we want a, mil- a military presence there. And that military presence does what?
1: And that's an excuse to get them there, I guess.
0: Okay. And what, what will that military presence do? It's going to give the U.S. the ability to protect U.S. interests from corporations that are interested in what? Oil, diamonds, gold, and probably other things that we don't even know about. That is what's coming to the surface. And, of course, when you go to The Real News, there's a a news organization called therealnews.com that's supported by a man named Paul J. And I urge you all to go to therealnews.com And explore this site. It's not supported by corporations, by the government, or by private interests. It's all donations from people who want the real news. So there's no advertising for the conflict of interest. Exactly. I donate to it regularly because I feel strong about having the real news come out. And one of the stories that came out there that explained this and made, made sense to me was what I just told you. So I'm repeating what I heard Paul Jay interview someone on the real news. And it was very disturbing to hear this man talk about, you know, you talk about blood diamonds. This is bloody bola because there's a lot invested here uh, in a in a country that has rich resources that other countries want to have a presence that brings those resources back to their country. So there's a lot more than meets the eye. I think there is. and I, You know, you don't want to be paranoid about stuff like this, but you got to keep an open mind, too. I mean, when you start looking at how everything's unfolding and how when Dr. Rowan and Howard and Dr. Robbins go over there, teach their doctors about Ebola, and then the doctors are excited about it. Then the minister of health says, no, we've changed our mind. You can't do it because I think they know it's going to work. It's going to change the economics of what's going on there. There would be no need for the U.S. military to be there. There would be no no need for the pharmaceutical industry to be developing vaccines and drugs that are going to make hundreds of billions of dollars. They don't want that to happen because they're busy making arrangements. So it's worth
1: it to them to have all these people die.
0: Yes. That's what it boils down to. It's worth it to them. To make a buck. It's worth it to them. It's a terrible thing to, to suspect, but that's how it looks to me. And until I see it differently, I'm going with that position because I don't trust governments. I don't trust the way the world's economy is handled. I don't trust our Congress. I don't trust the corporate America that we have. Or the news. <laughs> or the news in the U.S. You can believe, I think, what you see in therealnews.com. dot com. Go there again and support Paul Jay's program. I think it's it's uh, something that the world needs is to have independent reporting that's not tied to the standard news outlets that we have that are owned by people who have tons of money and want to protect their investments that's a terrible thing so when we're looking at this whole thing it's very disheartening to know that there's so much going on that's manipulating the way we think and it's all geared to support ongoing issues that have to do with economics rather than a real compassion for those poor people in Sierra Leone and other surrounding countries there where Ebola is killing people.
1: So now we've had one person that was treated with ozone, only mm-hmm. one person. Yes. And he was cured. Yes. and then they In two st- days. And they stopped it.
0: And they stopped the whole program. They didn't want to take the risk.
1: A lot of the doctors were lined up, uh, weren't they getting treatments preventively?
0: When I spoke with Robert Rowan directly about this, that's what he told me. So I trust the source. So it also prevents it. It can prevent it too. I think it can. Well, these things need to be studied. These things that we're talking about aren't facts yet. We can't say... They're
1: observations.
0: Well, they're good observations (laughs) that deserve to be explored more deeply because, I mean, why wouldn't you want to know more about something that's inexpensive that works like magic? And I I know Dr. Rowan's been studying this since the 80s and he gives lectures all over the world on what he calls oxidative therapy. And he
1: also does photooxidation. It's
0: a very similar way of using ultraviolet light instead of using ozone. Uh It's really interesting the way he does it. I mean, what he does is he takes out a certain volume of blood, maybe 150, 200 cc's, and puts it in a tube and then puts it under pressure with ozone exposure. And that makes a little hyperbaric oxygen chamber outside the body. Then he just runs it right back in. And that does all these things. You can do the same thing with UV light. So the ozone is is not injected into the blood? It can be done two ways. One is a direct injection, which is the way that Dr. Robbins does it. And the way Dr. Rowan has, does it in his own practice is he puts it under a little bit of two atmospheres of pressure instead of one. So it puts more ozone in it. Then he runs that back into the body. You can do it either way. Mm-hmm. So these are...
1: But the blood is never exposed to the outside or anything. No, no, it's a
0: sterile procedure that's safe. And the effects of it are are just mind-boggling. It's something that should be coming forward uh, in the use of medicine for a lot of things because it reduces inflammation. Well, these two doctors use it on themselves, but just another Mm -hmm. method.
1: They don't take it IV because they're not sick, but they just do it to boost their own immunity. Well,
0: it can be given by different routes. It can be given rectally, okay, as a... Like an enema of ozone, and that's a safe way to go. What you don't it sounds want. Sounds to...
1: like it might give you a lot of gas. <laughs> no,
0: you're very funny. <laughs> it's going to give you a little bit the right kind of gas this time. <laughs> well, that's right. Okay, well, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuda with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicky's first 2020 tip on think before you drink a latte. And when we come back, we're talking about is fast food really linked to getting lower grades?
1: Are you wishing that Starbucks would continue their pumpkin lattes after the holidays? Well, wish again and think before you drink, because <laughs> I'm going to dissect Starbucks pumpkin spice
0: lattes. Oh, boy. You're going to take all that good taste away from us, huh?
1: Well, actually, first of all, it's got two doses of caramel color, level four. And you might think, well, what's that? Well, there's four different types of caramel coloring, and Starbucks uses the most harmful type. Oh, all right. It contains something called 4-mel, and it's in many of their drink syrups, sauces, and it's even in their whipping cream. And this coloring is made with ammonia, and it's considered a carcinogen, so it increases your risk of cancer. There's absolutely no real pumpkin in the ingredients. It's made with Monsanto milk, cows that are fed GMO and antibiotics and hormones, And they're fed, you know, the GMO corn and soy and cottonseed or soy milk. The the soy milk even contains uh, carrageenan, which is a stabilizer that's linked to intestinal inflammation and cancer also. And it's also in their organic soy. So if you ask for the latte made with organic soy, you're still going to get this carrageenan. Also it has a toxic dose of sugar. The Grande has over uh, 50 grams of sugar. Whoa. How, about how many spoonfuls of that of sugar is that?
0: How many grams? Is, I mean, how many 50 grams? 50 grams, so you got uh, 200 calories there.
1: <laughs> Just in the sugar. Yeah. Then they have ambiguous natural flavors that can be made from anything. <laughs> Artificial flavors that are made from substances like
0: petroleum. Wow, that's disappointing. Starbucks was doing some good things a couple of years for ago. For their employees. Yeah. why well, they were doing some Except good things. Except for, for their
1: giving foods. them stuff <laughs> to drink. <laughs> yeah. Contains preservatives and sulfites that can cause allergic reactions and DNA damage. Hmm. And also, their their, non, their coffee beans are non-organic, so they have pot, they have pesticide residue. And some of the other countries that supply them with their coffee beans use pesticides that are banned in the U.S. Wow. And then also, it contains um, condensed conventional milk with high fructose corn syrup. It's not vegan, even with the soy milk options, and also that. C- contains the carrageenan, like i like I mentioned, but the good news is that there are some recipes that you can make yourself for uh pumpkin spice lattes uh-huh. they're all over the internet if you just want to put uh homemade pumpkin latte. Mm -hmm. On the Internet, a lot of things will come up. A lot of them actually have pumpkin in them.
0: (laughs) There's there's (laughs) a special treat, the (laughs) pumpkin latte with real pumpkin. Yeah,
1: they use a little pumpkin puree. (laughs) And uh, if you don't want to use real pumpkin and you just want it to taste like it, all you have to do is add a little pumpkin pie spice. So if you want to make a latte, use a quarter of a teaspoon of pumpkin pie spice, one teaspoon of maple syrup or honey, And a little, three quarters of a cup of warm milk and one shot of espresso. All right. But there's other, you know, you can do it with mocha and hot cocoa and all that, but that's enough for that.
0: Wow. That sounds good.
1: Have you ever noticed that you don't eat a healthy diet, you don't concentrate as well or you get tired soon after you've eaten? You know, like you eat lunch and you come back to class and you doze off. Well, a recent nationwide study showed that the frequency of eating fast food correlated with lower test scores in close to 12,000 students from 5th to the 8th grade Mm -hmm. in reading, math, and science. Mm -hmm. And we already know that fast food isn't good for us and it contributes to the obesity epidemic, but this study emphasizes how important it is for students
0: to eat a nutritious, balanced diet. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, when you're looking at... What you put into the body, it's really important because if you don't put in what you need, how are you going to function right? You have to look at your cells as microscopic industrial plants. And if you put all the raw materials you need, say you're making a car, if you have a steering wheel, that's nice. If you have a spark plugs, that's nice. If you have tires, that's nice. But if you're missing anything, Car is not going to work right.
1: And you have to have gas and oil well, and water. All the and... <laughs> things that,
0: that you need to have that are the right things. You can't make something out of thin air. And your body is a very sophisticated uh, machine, if you will, if you want to look at it that way, that produces. Products that make energy, that sustain it to make enzymes and hormones and different things that keep us healthy. So if you don't eat the raw materials, you can't make them. And this is a great study that just emphasizes the importance of what you eat.
1: So let's talk about what's wrong specifically with fast food.
0: Well, it doesn't have much nutrient. It doesn't have natural nutrients in it. It's not <laughs> it even has food. pumpkin spice it has
1: latte pump- in yeah.
0: it. Well, there you go. <laughs>
1: that's artificial additives. <laughs> when you're talking about food
0: products, you're not talking about what Mother Nature makes. See, Mother Nature is really wise, and she's had a long time to get it right. And we've had a long time to adapt to what Mother Nature makes. So when you eat a, a grape or a, a pumpkin seed or you're eating a, a, an apple or something that's a whole food, That's different than something that has preservatives and additives that has been refined and processed, that's had things added to it like pesticides and hormones and antibiotics.
1: That's not real food. And the wrong fats that are cooked at high temperatures that are loaded with with toxins and the meat has the hormones and antibiotics and pesticides in it. Okay. They're empty calories, low in nutrition, and also a lot of fast food, and people do this themselves at home even when they make their own food, is microwaved.
0: Oh, And microwave
1: food, it changes the molecular composition of the food, and you don't really know what you're getting when you microwave food. It is not worth it to do it fast. You can get used to cooking the long way. We cook the long way. We've been doing this forever, and it's worth it. I mean, like today, I wanted to have something that was going to take about 20 minutes to half an hour, so I put it in the oven and went and took a shower. Yeah, there you go. You know, or go fi- make your bed or do whatever it is that, that you need to do while it's while it's cooking or do your dishes.
0: <laughs> All right. So what's your bottom line here is does it really make a difference? And your common sense would say, of course it makes a difference. But somebody finally did a study out of Ohio State University that was published in a journal called Clinical Pediatrics. And as Vicki said, they looked at 11, almost 12,000 students. And they tested them for reading literacy for math and science in the fifth grade and again in the eighth grade. And in the fifth, when they were in the fifth grade, they took a, f- a food diary from them to find out what the heck they were eating and how many of them were eating fast food and how often they were doing it. And what they found was is that test scores are up to 20% lower in those students that ate fast food. And that's, that's an enormous difference. And it really shouldn't be a huge surprise because again if you don't put in what you need to make your brain work, to make your kidneys and heart work and to boost your immunity and to protect you against getting infections and, and to and to be as strong as you can. I mean that's just common sense. And we've reported before about how important healthy fats are for feeding
1: our brain. They're vital. And we all know that sugar wears off quickly and then and then you get sleepy. So a healthy lifestyle is so important. And you yeah. have to include exercise and sleep and, and, and stress reduction if you want to do well in class too. And if you want good grades... Besides attending class and studying and getting your homework in on time, you need to stay away from these fast foods, pay attention to your lifestyle by eating healthy foods, getting enough sleep, exercising, and again, reducing your stress levels.
0: Well, that's right. And so now we have some of the hard data, but it's not new. I mean, we had data 25 years ago from a fellow named Thaler who did some studies in New York. On, on children in school and and looked at the at the level of violence that was an interesting way to look at it, and to look at prisons and see how much violence there was. And when they fed them for a couple of months with healthy food, just one meal a day or a multivitamin pill, that violence went down forty four percent.
1: I've seen TV shows where they've shown kids that have had artificial colors or a lot of sugar in their diet, and they're, like, hyperactive, and they're having temper tantrums, and yeah. they're totally, like, uncontrollable. Well, we've seen it in our own
0: kids. You know, you feed them sugar and, and uh, things that are rich in sugar, and they get hyperactive, and they're hard to manage. I mean, it becomes a disaster. Anyway, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. And we'll be right back with more prescriptions for health radio and we'll be talking about why hypertension is overdiagnosed and over-treated by so many doctors. Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuda here with Nurse Vicky.
1: High blood pressure is often misdiagnosed and over-treated. Yet if you really do have hypertension, it's important to treat it because it's the greatest risk factor for cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. And this isn't a new topic for us, but it warrants review because it affects so many people, especially older adults and those that are overweight. And because the drugs used for it can have unpleasant side effects, including zapping your energy and affecting your quality of life.
0: Yeah, right.
1: How serious is hypertension?
0: Well, it's a problem you don't want, that's for sure, because it causes all kinds of cardiovascular problems. It causes premature arteriosclerosis, which leads to heart attacks and strokes. So how does it cause all that? Well, by causing blocks in arteries to develop. When you have a higher pressure, uh, particularly in an area uh, where there's a fork in an artery, it tends to form plaque there. And when that plaque builds, it obstructs the artery. And you have other reasons for developing uh, arteriosclerosis. Uh, it adds to it, and that can lead to the heart attacks and strokes and kidney disease a lot of people are dying from, uh, and peripheral vascular disease where people are winning up with amputations. So it's, uh, I mean, hypertension is something to take very seriously. So how do you know when you need treatment and who needs it? Well, that's a really good question. That's the $64,000 question because everybody has blood pressure that's different when they're in the presence of a doctor and in the office, particularly if you've been waiting a long time, you're a little hacked off. Or you're there worried because you have some other problem that you is making you upset.
1: That's why they call it the white coat uh, well, syndrome. Exactly.
0: <laughs> you see the white coat, and it, it, you get this association that uh, you're going to the doctor, and and something bad's going to happen because you. And not, a lot of people, people are well.
1: scared of what their blood pressure is going to be.
0: Oh yeah, what more? And rapid that creates it to, to be in- higher. <laughs> well, that's a normal response. So. The way that we were taught to do it when I was in medical school is you took a blood pressure and, you, you know, if it was a little high, maybe they should take it a second time. But we really paid attention to that first blood pressure. And a lot of people have a blood pressure that's outside the normal range on single blood pressure checks. And it is not reflective of whether or not they truly have hypertension. It's really more of a reflection of how upset they can get and how much of of an adrenaline response they get to a situation that's stressful.
1: Yeah, I've had people tell me that they're even afraid to take their own.
0: On their own blood pressure. You know, the oh, first yeah. thing that
1: happens is that they go to the doctor and it's and it's high, yeah. because, and they're nervous, or may, maybe sure. they were running late and they ran up the oh, stairs, or who knows things. whatever reason. Yeah, right. Okay, so then that sets the stage for them being nervous about having their blood pressure exactly. taken, and so then the doctor says. Well, you better get a blood pressure cuff at home and take Mm -hmm. your blood pressure at home. And then every time they go to take their blood pressure at home, they get nervous and the same thing happens. Or they do it in the drugstore or whatever it is. I have to
0: tell some people, don't take your blood pressure, please. Because every time they do, they freak out and it goes high. And you can see ranges from 230 over 120... Gee. To down to one ten or one twenty or one forty, over eighty to ninety or a hundred, which is this a must be big fluctuations.
1: This must be why it's so important. To do an ambulatory blood pressure reading,
0: it's a much you more wear, sensitive yeah, test. Yeah, where you
1: wear a blood pressure cuff for 24 hours, yeah. and it just takes your blood pressure at different different intervals throughout mm-hmm. the day and throughout the night, mm-hmm. and you feel the tightening on your arm. So it's a little, it can be a little bit annoying. When well, you start,
0: if it does it every 15 minutes, you start to get sick and tired of it. So it doesn't, it doesn't rev you up in a way where you get nervous. It may just go, oh, here it goes again, Yeah, <clears throat> which is a lot different than being upset about it. I think the, what I do with my patients, I don't get ambulatory blood pressure uh, readings on a regular basis on people who have high blood pressure. What I'll do is say, take your home blood pressures and let's see what they are. And for about 90% of people, that's a good way to go. Most of them don't get that riled up. No, and then you don't have to take... Uh, the ambulatory blood pressure test, which costs money and is inconvenient.
1: And they can keep a record of it for you so that when and they come themselves. back to the office, they can show you what their blood pressure readings are. But isn't it a good idea to take it at different times of the day mm-hmm. and and also especially before you take any blood pressure medication? Oh,
0: yeah. What would happen if you had a blood pressure, say, of 90 over 60 because you're taking medication? I mean, Maybe mean, you take did a little it again. Exercise, <laughs> and then you take your blood pressure pill again. You what pass you, out. Well, you might, or you might have a drop in blood pressure that's enough to cause a heart attack or a stroke. And people don't think of that. A blood pressure that's too low is dangerous just as a blood pressure that's too high is, but So for your doctor reasons. should
1: tell you when to not take your blood pressure pill according to what your blood pressure reading is at night before you go to bed because at night before you go to bed your bl- blood pressure normally does drop unless you well, do have hypertension. Well, it's during sleep that
0: it drops, and that's where the ambulatory blood pressure comes in as a superior way to take blood pressure because there what happens is... During the evening time, when you're asleep, there's a a normal drop of maybe 10 or 15 millimeters of mercury. So instead of being 130 over 85, it may be more like 120 over 80 or 75. And that's a normal pattern. The first thing that you see go wrong in people who are losing control of their blood pressure and starting to get hypertension is that loss of that drop in blood pressure. So an ambulatory blood pressure monitor not only gives you 50 or so readings or more, uh, actually about 80 readings in a 24-hour period, But it shows you the patterns when it's high and and when it's not.
1: And you don't do this ambulatory blood pressure monitor all the time. It's usually like a one-time thing, right? Well,
0: it can be. I mean, you can do it from time to time. It depends on whether or not people can afford it, if insurance doesn't pay for it, but usually it does, or whether or not they want to go through the stress of putting the thing on and being annoyed for 24 hours because it really does interfere with your quality of life for that day. But I think for most people, just taking their blood pressure At home, you know, a couple times a day before you take your blood pressure pills is a normal way to do it. And if you do that for months on end, 95% of people, they get good readings that way. The ones that are all freaked out about it and they've got anxiety and emotional issues. Otherwise, sometimes that's hopeless and what you have to do is maybe take a, a couple of ambulatory blood pressures for more than 24 hours. So how high is high blood pressure? Well, I think that that's an interesting question that's relative. I think that the best blood pressures in healthy people are probably more like 110 or 105 over 70 or 80, something like that. There's a linear relationship between heart attacks and strokes starting at about a systolic blood pressure of 100 that goes up even to the 140 over 90. It's quite a bit higher at 140 than it is over 110 or 105. But you don't get any benefit from taking antihypertensive pills, particularly over the age of 60, until your blood pressure reaches about 150 over 90. Even though you're going to lower the risk of these heart attacks and strokes, you're going to have other problems that are going to make up for it. So the United States Preventive Services Task Force has come out saying that the cutoff point for people over 60 is 150 over 90. For people, before you start treatment, with drugs. Now, there are lots of treatments that you can do prior to that that everybody who has hypertension uh, should be thinking about. Like with a healthy lifestyle. Oh, the exercise is huge. You want to drop and blood pressure a And stress reduction, too. Sleep's another one. You don't get enough sleep, you're going to have hypertension. Your cortisol levels are going to be high. Your adrenaline's going to be high. Your blood pressure is going to be high. Your pulse will be fast and you won't feel good.
1: Okay, now speaking about the numbers, the most important number is the top number, the systolic, of right? Of the
0: two, it's the most important. We used to think it was the bottom number, the diastolic, that was the most important, but that was just what people told us. They didn't really base that on any studies.
1: Okay, and then also let's talk for, for a second here about
0: the pulse pressure. That's the difference between the two, and that's the most predictive of problems. So if you've got a blood pressure of 120 over 80... Okay. That's a, a difference of 40. If you have a blood pressure of 180 over 80, that's a difference of 100. And the difference is that's huge. That's not good. But you might have a blood pressure also, say, of of 160 over 100 or 110 or 120. And the pulse pressure wouldn't be the only thing to measure there. So there are lots of ways to look at blood pressure that you need experience to be able to judge.
1: And we have so much more on hypertension on our website, oh, yeah. on drsaputo.com.
0: So right. if you need to know Take more... Take one of the health assessments. They're free. The whole site's free. And that's a good thing to do. All right. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Nurse Vicky's final 2020 tip on why you should keep apple cider vinegar in your medicine cabinet. And when we come back, we're talking about what can predict our mortality 10 to 15 years early. And does how old you feel affect how long you'll live?
1: Get out that apple cider vinegar and put it in your salads and spritz it and drink it and marinate with it because it's purported to have many health benefits. This is an incredible drink, (laughs) It prevents flu and stomach illness. It it can dissolve kidney stones, according to some. It regulates pH balance in the body, it helps relieve nausea and hiccups, it's good to relieve heartburn or chronic reflux, it's weird, you wouldn't think that it would because it tastes sour, but it has a pH that's alkaline. It helps to relieve asthma, it helps relieve allergies and even gout and lowers glucose levels in diabetics and it helps weight loss by curbing appetite and breaking down fat and it helps relieve migraine headaches. It's also thought to help relieve sinus pressure and infection and lower blood pressure, reduce stiffness, lower your cholesterol. It even reduces inflammation and relieves arthritis. And you know, when I was a kid, we used to use it to detangle our hair. It was like a hair conditioner before they even invented hair conditioning. I
0: think you use it for something else, too, when you were younger.
1: Oh, we'd yeah. We used to, we pretended like we were playing bar and we drink it out of jiggers.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> it's supposed to get rid of nail fungus. It works well to clear uh-huh. up fungal and bacterial rashes. It sure. soothes bug bites. I use it to spray on my horses to deter the flies. Mm, and it works. And it gets rid of warts and it helps reduce and prevent acne. Now, the kind, oh, you know what else is good for? Leg cramps. Huh!
0: Interesting. The other thing—that's what the Amish use in their in their preparation. Yeah, with I, a
1: little bit of ginger and garlic in it, but it really
0: works. It's interesting. That's called an outcome study. We don't maybe know the reason why that happens, but it's fantastic, and a lot of people love it for cramps.
1: So, if I've talked you into it, I, what you need to do is to get the right kind of apple cider vinegar, and it might not look so appealing because that's why they have don't really the sell it in the grocery stores. You have to get it in the health food store. You want to get the organic raw. Unfiltered, unpasteurized, with the mother in it, the mother? and the mother is the gunk. <laughs> it's this cloudy mucus-like kind of cobweb At thing, the bottom, yeah. And if you shake it up, you mm-hmm. see it all like floating around in there. But it's got really healthy raw enzymes and some gut-friendly bacteria. Uh-huh. So that's what you what you want to do. You know, a lot of people think that they need to drink it with warm water and all that kind of thing but i love to just put it in my salad dressing that makes it oh, an easy yeah. way to get
0: it yeah it reminds you a little bit of of oils you know you want to get unfiltered oils that have gunk in the bottom you know when you get flaxseed oil oh, yeah right The know black stuff. In particularly and you you look at the whole oil down at the bottom all this dark stuff that's the gunk is really got a lot of the good stuff in it so we always buy unfiltered olive oil that's uh, organic
1: yeah and the flaxseed oil that's high lignin because that's the stuff that fights cancer that's in the flaxseed does all the good things that's right so it's also even good for um gargling if you have a sore throat Mm -hmm. and for rinsing your mouth some people say it's good for bad breath anyhow as you age would you be interested in knowing your risk of frailty and death from any cause Mm. up to 15 years before symptoms appear i mean do you think it would make a difference in your lifestyle Many of us need to know predictors like this to be motivated to change. And if we don't foresee the crooked path that we're on, many times we think we can get by with it for a while longer, putting off a healthy lifestyle until we come to the cliff at the end of the path.
0: Mm, That's really right.
1: A new John Hopkins uh, University research suggests the amount of mitochondrial DNA found in the blood is a useful predictor and biomarker for these risks because we all age differently, this association can be helpful information, and we now have a way to test for it. So before we get into that, first
0: of all, what is mitochondrial DNA and why is it important? Okay, and even before we get into that, I want to kind of preface this by saying that there's a big difference between being in perfect health and not yet having symptoms because your body is deteriorated beyond a certain point. I call this the wellness buffer. Right. So until we lose maybe 30, 40, 50% of our wellness reserves, our bodies still don't have symptoms. But when we get to that edge where we start to have symptoms, it's like jumping off a cliff. All of a sudden, things all just fall apart. So you want to pay attention to how fast you're aging and pay attention to how healthy you actually are by looking at a lot of lifestyle factors. Now, for those people who don't, which is most people, then a test like this can give you some clues and tell you that you're starting to age. So so now, what is mitochondrial DNA? First of all, what's a mitochondria? So what we're looking at is the energy packets of which we have thousands in every cell are what make the energy that our body uses. You know, gasoline runs a car. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is what runs the the machinery of our body. It runs the biochemistry of our body. So we need ATP. The mitochondria is responsible for making most of the ATP that our body generates. So when we measure the amount of DNA in the mitochondria or from the mitochondria, that's in our bloodstream, it gives us an idea of how well our wellness reserves are. Because what this study showed that was published in the Journal of Molecular uh, Medicine in in December of 2014 uh, is that it was a useful predictor to tell us about our risk for being frail as well as for all-cause mortality. And it, it caused changes that could be measured 10 to 15 years before symptoms would start.
1: You know, we reported in another study not too long ago about how we can change our own
0: DNA. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we have a big impact on that through what we believe, how we feel, and also uh, how well we enjoy a healthy lifestyle. And so here's, another, and here's another way with our mitochondria of our DNA. Well, the, the mitochondria are really huge things that change as we age. Not only the mitochondria become smaller, but they become less numerous as we become older. So as we lose our number of mitochondria and and... Have less of the DNA that comes from mitochondria in our bloodstream. It tells us how old we are to a large extent from a bio- biochemical point of view. Now, bio- early,
1: earlier we were talking about Ebola mm-hmm. and the ozone, uh huh, and how it helped to get oxygen to the blood cells and to the organs and yes. so on and so forth. Yes. So when we're talking about mitochondrial DNA. Mm-hmm. What does oxygen utilization have to do with that?
0: A ton because what happens is you as you lose mitochondria because you don't make so many because you age that's what happens or they become smaller and can't make as much ATP uh, we don't make we can't use oxygen that much and oxygen is what we need to be able to make ATP in the largest amounts so, So how do
1: we how do we test for this
0: uh, mitochondria? It's it's just a blood test. So it's a useful biomarker in the field of aging that can get us off our duff to start living a more healthy lifestyle because it's telling us roughly how much of our wellness buffer we've we've gotten rid of. So what's this blood
1: test called?
0: This is called a mitochondrial DNA test. I don't think it's in clinical practice yet. But
1: I thought you could do this also with the bioenergy test.
0: Well, that test is called a cardiopulmonary exercise test. Uh, You're right. And it is designed to measure how well your body utilizes oxygen. And people who have any disease... So you could do this
1: without a blood test.
0: Oh, yeah. This is a much better way to do the same thing without having to do a blood test. Because it's basically measuring the same thing. It's measuring how well does your body make ATP? How, how well does your, do your mitochondria utilize oxygen? How efficient are they in making ATP? When you are sick, you lose that. So if you have something like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or Lyme disease or cancer or whatever, Your body is not going to be able to make as much ATP, and it can tell you how much of your wellness buffer you've lost and can give you a biological age. How old are you?
1: So in other words, your energy reserves decrease, and then you would be more susceptible to
0: health problems and disease. Yeah, because you just don't have as much energy to use to to keep you well. And energy, ATP, is what you need to keep yourself well.
1: So... I know you just bought this machine that does bioenergy testing,
0: which is... Yeah, for a mere $60,000, that's right.
1: As an aside here. That's right. But I know that the reason you bought this machine is because you feel that almost everybody should do this test.
0: Well, everybody and, could do this test, and they would have a good assessment of how much reserves they have and relatively how how young they are. So there's a lot to this. It's very interesting. So...
1: Um, how does this help? I mean, what what does it tell you?
0: Well, basically going to tell you what the risk is for dying early. So, and so
1: then what you do about it is you improve your lifestyle and maybe take supplements or something. What this study yes. w- was showing on their results was that they were hoping to invent a drug to help you with oh, your well, mitochondria that, and your DNA.
0: Exactly. Well, That's the silliest thing of all time, but that's how medical the business of medicine thinks and that's the first thing that comes up is well what can we do to to increase mitochondrial dna levels well, so when a
1: person's frail they're weak they don't have as much energy they have lower activity levels yeah. their muscle strength reduces yes. they, they start losing weight and that's and right wasting
0: that's right and their mitochondria are shriveling up And this is just a reflection of when it shrivels up, you shrivel up.
1: Okay, so again, what's the name of this uh, bioenergy test? It's called the CPAT
0: test, a a cardiopulmonary exercise test. And hardly any doctors do that. It was really through Frank Schallenberger, the doctor out of... Reno uh, or out of uh, Carson City, Nevada, who brought this forward into clinical practice a few years ago. So my so hat's off to him.
1: Yeah. So it tells you your biological age
0: anyway. I think it, it gives you a hint about that, even though we need more research to document what the numbers actually mean.
1: Okay. You know, we've all heard the expression young at heart. I think there was even a song about that.
0: Exactly. <laughs> there sure was.
1: Do you feel your age or can you believe you're as old as you are? Or do you feel older than your age? Do you blame your health issues on your age? Hmm. Well, that's right. Well, UK researchers analyzed data from 6,500 adults over 52 years of age, and they found that feeling younger than your actual age is linked to lower mortality and that there's a relationship between feeling older that significantly predicts cardiovascular death. And this is something that always bugs me, about you because you're <laughs> always blaming everything on how old we are and I want you to stop it so now we have an article to prove well. that that's not a healthy way to be you've got to start saying that you feel younger than what you are
0: well so you have to have a sense of humor Vicki I see so that's funny well it is to me I I kind of exaggerate it just to kind of show off actually because for my age oh because
1: you want people to say oh
0: Oh, you don't look old. Not necessarily that. I mean, that would be nice, but that's not what it's about. It's sort of just about joking because let's face it, uh, as you get old, uh, it, it's uh, things change and you have to be able to adapt.
1: You start kind of wearing out. <laughs> yeah, I'd
0: say that compared to other people my age, I've got to be about 10 years younger because of all the things that I've done lifestyle-wise. Throughout my whole life except
1: your joints because you've worn them out
0: well there's some of that I mean but at my age there are a lot of people that are dead <laughs> can't even well, walk yeah. okay but i'm I'm certainly far from that
1: well another thing about this study which what it shows is that the the power of our
0: minds oh yeah well that's I mean huge.
1: And being positive, that makes a difference in our health. It and if changes. you think old, if you think old, you're going to act old.
0: I'll guarantee you, Vicki, I don't think old about myself. Some of the time I'm just kidding with you because I know you're really sensitive about it. It's kind of fun to watch you squirm a little. No, you, you just me want serious. me to
1: say, stop saying you're old.
0: Oh, well. <laughs> so I think that it shows the power of what you think and how it affects your biochemistry and physiology. If you think young, a lot happens to change that biochemistry and physiology that's healthy. And you know, too, once you get to our
1: age, you notice how people age differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people have aged so fast that they're gone. But I mean, people really do age differently.
0: Well, let's look at what this study showed. They followed people for eight eight years, and these were people, 6,500 people, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association this December. Uh, and, And they asked them, how old do you feel? And the results show that 70% of them felt at least three years younger than their actual age. 25% felt about the same, and 5% felt a year or more older. After eight years of follow-up, those who felt younger than their stated age had a mortality rate of 14%. Those that were feeling the same age as they were had a mortality rate of 19%. And those who felt older had a mortality rate of 25%. So we've got something here that really is a substantial ch- difference. So what you, th- what you think is part of it, but some people know they're not in great health when they're older. And so that may be just an honest appraisal. It says, well, I have cancer or, well, I've had four heart attacks. Or, How old strokes. do you feel? Probably more like about 60 or 65 maybe. So you f-
1: feel like fifteen, ten, fifteen years younger? Yeah,
0: and I've been in great shape my whole life. So, that, that's well, probably... I feel
1: I feel ten years younger. All right. So, ask yourselves, how old do you feel?
0: All right, good question. Or at the end of the show, so.
1: So if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe, so if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life.